We're carrying on in Acts this morning, um, and I'm going to be reading from Acts 15, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles or electronic gadgets. And I'll be reading from um, Acts 15, verse 36, through to Acts chapter 16, verse 5. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers by the grace, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Cilicia. Sorry, sorry, Viv. Paul came also to Derby into Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So I'm going to break this week's message into two chunks. In the first chunk... Paul and Barnabas fall out because Barnabas wants to bring John Mark on a mission trip with them. And just to explain, people in those times would often have a Jewish name and a Greek name. In this case, John and Mark. Sometimes he's referred to as John, sometimes as Mark, sometimes as John Mark. I'm just going to refer to him as John Mark and hopefully that'll give some clarity. So Paul and Barnabas fall out because Barnabas wants to bring John Mark on a mission with them. Paul doesn't think it's a good idea, so they part company. So there's three characters in this bit of narrative, and I think it's worth exploring them and the the background a bit before we work out what's happening. So we know Paul very well. He's probably the most influential person in the history of the church, apart from Christ himself. As we've already heard over the last few months, Paul was a devout Jew, in fact, he describes himself as Philippians, as in Philippians, as circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, zealous to the point of persecuting the church, blameless under the law. And then something happened. On the road to Damascus, he encountered Christ, and everything changed. He became an apostle dedicating his life to sharing the gospel of Christ Jesus and strengthening the church, either in person or through his letters. And much of the book of Acts is about his travels, about how, he, about how empowered by the Holy Spirit he shared the gospel around the known world of that time. And as we heard from Ron a few weeks ago, that same Holy Spirit empowers us today. But if we rewind Paul's story a bit, if we go back to when he first encountered Christ, Naturally, 
the disciples were very suspicious of Paul and his motives at first. And who could blame them? The first time we encounter Paul in scripture is looking after the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. He was history's first documented cloakroom attendant. And shortly after that, we hear that he's persecuting the church with some vigor, ravaging the church, in fact, entering house after house and dragging men and women to prison, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But after that eventful trip to Damascus, where he came to see the light, literally, he returned to Jerusalem. And naturally, the disciples were frightened of him. None of them wanted anything to do with him, apart from one disciple, Barnabas, who we meet again in today's passage. Now, Barnabas means son of encouragement, and it's quite an appropriate name for him. He saw something in Paul and came alongside him. He spent time with him. He traveled with him. He nurtured him and discipled him, something we all need. And as time went on, Paul developed into the apostle we remember. He found many of the earliest churches outside Jerusalem. He gave guidance on all sorts of different matters to that developing church. He put his life in danger many times to share the gospel And he wrote letters that form around a third of the New Testament. And Barnabas might not have the high profile that Paul had, but Paul wouldn't have become the person he became without Barnabas' encouragement at the start of his journey. And we can see Paul's development through Acts. He starts as Barnabas' disciple, with Barnabas taking the lead on the early missions. But as time goes on, Paul becomes more and more prominent and is clearly the leader as time goes on. And we particularly see this subtle change in Acts 13, where part, part way through it stops referring to them as Barnabas and Paul, but starts referring to them as Paul and Barnabas instead. A subtle change maybe, but it reflects the change in dynamics between them. So then we get to today's passage, where Paul and Barnabas fall out. And why do they fall out? Over someone called John Mark. So who's this guy? We don't know too much about him from Acts. We know that sometimes he's referred to as John, sometimes as Mark. But in Acts 12, which we looked at a few weeks ago, after Peter fled from prison, he went to a house that was owned by John Mark's mother, Mary. John Mark then helped Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip to Cyprus, carrying on further through Perga and on to Antioch in Pisidia. But John Mark didn't continue on with them to Antioch. He set off back to Jerusalem. And why he left Paul and Barnabas at that point, we don't know. Acts 4 tells that Barnabas was from Cyprus. And Colossians chapter 4 tells us that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. So maybe it made sense for John Mark to evangelize, for John Mark and Barnabas to evangelize Cyprus together. And John Mark had never planned to do more than that. Or maybe he was frightened by what was happening around him. They got into some pretty scary situations. The message wasn't always well received in the places they visited. Or maybe there was a family problem at home. We don't know. But we do know that he set off back to Jerusalem, leaving Paul and Barnabas behind to do the work. And the way the text is written, it looks like he left them quite suddenly. They weren't expecting it. And it's hard to say for sure why he left them, 
but he definitely left them partway through a missionary journey, and it seems to be without warning. And later in the passage, it describes him as the one who deserted them in Pamphylia. So that's all the background to today's passage. And this time, Paul and Barnabas are preparing for another mission. They're going to visit the churches they established earlier. And Barnabas wants to take along his cousin again, John Mark. But Paul disagrees. After the way John Mark deserted them, he doesn't want him tagging along. And maybe this is reasonable. Mission is dangerous. There's the physical danger. How many different beatings and stonings do we read about in the book of Acts? How often are apostles arrested and dragged into prison? How often were they hassled either by the crowd or by individuals who didn't like the message they were proclaiming? Mission is dangerous work, and we should expect it to be. One of my favorite quotes about mission is from a theologian called Leslie Newbegin, who spent most of his life on mission work in India. And he said this, I think the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Mission is walking the boundary between God's reign and the fallen world that has come under Satan. It's pushing back that frontier, taking back the ground that the devil has stolen. So when Richard travels to India, it's not just a jolly so he can get a bit of sun. It's not a few days' escape from Caroline's nagging. It's, it's hard work. And it, it is rewarding work, but it's really hard work. And it's spiritually draining. The devil doesn't give up ground without a fight. The obstacles that come up are physical, emotional, spiritual. It's dangerous. And whilst we should all be able to give a reason for the hope that's within us, mission is not for everybody. It needs people who are reliable. It needs people who will cover your back. It needs people with strong foundations to the faith. It needs people of prayer. It needs people like Richard. It needs people like Hannah, who's in India just now. So please keep her in your prayers and keep, keep up with the blog. So maybe Paul was right not to want to take John Mark along with him. He was a bit flaky. He abandoned a previous mission trip. We don't really know the details of why, but John Mark cleared off partway through the last journey. So why does Barnabas feel so strongly that he should join them again? Is he just deluded? Is it because John Mark was his cousin, so he's got a family loyalty towards him? Maybe. But I think it's probably just that Barnabas is an encourager. He's a pastor. He wants to bring people along. He wants to disciple people, even if there's a risk to that. Even if there's a chance John Mark might let them down again, he wants to give him another chance. He wants to develop him to his full potential. And if we think about how Paul has developed alongside Barnabas, this is a good reflection of Barnabas's character. None of the other disciples gave Paul a chance at first. And look at what he became under Barnabas's discipleship. The church would be very different today if Barnabas hadn't given Paul a chance, just as Barnabas is wanting to give John Mark a chance in today's passage. So if we take a step back, who was right? Was Paul right that John Mark let him down once, they shouldn't have him again? 
is a liability on a missionary trip? Or was Barnabas right? He needs discipling. Everybody needs a second chance. They should take John Mark with them. So maybe we should have a vote on this. Put your hand up if you think Paul was right. Put your hand up if you think Barnabas was right. Well, I I think it's really hard to call. Hopefully we can see both points of view. Paul and Barnabas disagree. And it's not that necessarily one is right and one is wrong. It's just that Paul and Barnabas are different people with a focus on different things. Paul's an apostle. His primary aim is to develop and establish a strong church. Whereas Barnabas is a pastor. His primary aim is to build up and develop people. To encourage them in the faith. And even Luke, the writer of Acts, doesn't commit to saying who is right. He just tells us that they went their separate ways. Barnabas and John Mark back to Cyprus, while Paul recruits Silas to join him in strengthening the churches. But the tragedy here is that they don't just disagree. The passage tells us that they disagree sharply. There was a sharp disagreement, and this isn't good. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have disagreement in the body of Christ. Now, this is where I was expecting uh, John Metcalf to put his hand up and say, yes, it is. Um, But God has given all of us a different focus, different strengths and different gifts, so that we can all work together to build up the body of the Christ. And that can lead to disagreement, as it did with Paul and Barnabas, but it shouldn't be sharp disagreement. It shouldn't lead to separation. Whatever our differences of opinion, whatever our different views are, we will always have more that joins us than separates us. Whatever my shortcomings are, Christ died for me, just as he died for you. Whatever your shortcomings are, they're covered by the blood of Christ, just as mine are. And the truth that we find so easy to forget is that if Christ hasn't dealt with your shortcomings, he hasn't dealt with mine either. If we're in Christ, we will always have more in common than not in common. And clearly, this unity is very important in Scripture. We read in John's Gospel that at the Last Supper, Jesus placed an enormous importance on our unity. In chapter 17, Jesus made a lengthy prayer um, that we now remember as the high priestly prayer. And... um, Verses 20 to 21 of that prayer in chapter 17 say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' last prayer with the disciples was that they and us also would be united united in Christ with God the Father, and that that unity would reveal that Jesus was sent by God. Our unity reveals Christ to the world. But not only that, I can't help noticing that the devil tends to pick us off, or at least try to pick us off when we're alone. When the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, she seemed to be alone. 
not sure where Adam was, fixing the lawnmower or something probably. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus, it was when he was alone in the wilderness. Satan tends to attack us when we're alone. We're all stronger when we're together, when we're part of the body. So if you're in disagreement with anyone at church, resolve it. And if it can't be resolved, love each other anyway. Consider those differences between each of us and recognize that maybe those differences are because God has called us all to different things. Celebrate those, those difference, the differences. They contribute to the richness of the church. We do learn from Paul's letters that he was reconciled to Barnabas and John Mark. In several of his letters, he, he commends them to the churches he's writing to. And in Paul's letters to Philemon and the Colossians, Paul mentions John Mark's presence with him when he was in prison in Rome. And it's generally accepted that John Mark was the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel. So maybe Barnabas was right after all. It's good to see that their relationship did recover from this dispute, but it should never have happened. We must demonstrate Christ to the world by our, by our love for him and our love for each other. So that's the first chunk, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus, and Paul takes Silas and moves on to Derby and Lystra, where he comes across a disciple called Timothy. Timothy's well regarded in the region, and Paul takes him under his wing to accompany him in strengthening the churches. But Paul does a strange thing first. He circumcises him. Now this is very odd. Paul had already had some very heated exchanges with the Jews about circumcision. A lot of the early church was Jewish at that time and felt that you could only be saved if you were circumcised in accordance with the custom of Moses, as we heard last week. Paul and Barnabas even went back to Jerusalem to discuss this with the apostles and the elders. And it was confirmed that, the Gen that Gentiles need not be circumcised and need not follow the rule, Jewish rules and regulations. This is something that Paul clearly felt very strongly about. His letter to the Galatians was probably written around this time, and he uses the strongest possible language to convey that Gentiles do not have to, be, to become Jewish to be saved. Circumcision is not a requirement for salvation. And in Galatians, Paul tells us, if you think circumcision will save you, you might as well cut the whole thing off. That's, para that's paraphrasing him a little bit, but not that much. We're saved by faith in, Christ, in what Christ has done, nothing else. So getting back to today's passage, which probably takes place after Galatians was written, why on earth did Paul circumcise Timothy? Well, the difference here is that Timothy is not a Gentile. The passage tells us that he had a Jewish mother, that his father was Greek, we also know from Paul's letters to him that he knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. So it seems likely that Timothy was brought up Jewish, but that his father didn't allow him to be circumcised. He seems to be Jewish in every way, apart from the fact that he's not circumcised. And our passage tells us that Timothy was known to the people in the places he visited, and they knew that his father was Greek. So it seems likely that the circumcision wasn't so that Timothy would be saved. 
it was, it was necessary so that Timothy would have credibility with the Jews. So that they would accept him and accept his credentials as a legitimate Jew. The false brothers we heard about last week in Acts, earlier in Acts 15 were professing believers, pressuring other believers to be circumcised as a work of the law to be saved. But Paul and Timothy were visiting non-believers, non-believing Jews. Timothy's circumcision was a missionary strategy so that it wouldn't be a barrier to those Jews hearing the gospel from Timothy and coming to faith themselves. And this is the principle that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, In verses 19 to 23, he wrote, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, so that I might win those outside the law. And Sometimes it's necessary to adjust how we do things, to reach out to those who don't know Christ. But we do not have to be circumcised to be saved. We don't have to do anything to be saved. Christ Jesus has done it all. We're saved solely by God's grace through what Christ has done. So, in closing, when we get irritated by things our brothers and sisters, by the things that our brothers and sisters in Christ do, when we feel offended by what someone has said, when we thoroughly disagree with somebody's opinion, remember that just as we are deserving of God's grace, so are they. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And whether we're talking about the worldwide church or just the churches in our nation, or whether I'm talking about just the churches in this town, or most importantly, our relationships with each other as individuals, our unity, our love, reveals Christ to the world. Um, That seems like a good place to finish. Um, So if the worship team would like to come up. As the worship team are coming up, I'd like to close with 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.